Mostly, I think about it as logic and magic. I think the logic part is hard work, study, heads down, like do all of that. But once you've done that for a long period of time, all of a sudden there's some magic moments that happen. There's some insight, there's some connections that happens in your brain. That is the magic moments. Those don't happen without the logic piece first. I read this book, Marie Kondo. She writes about how you can minimize everything. And we started out with 14 suitcases and we ended up with three carry-ons for a 14-month trip around the world. <laughs> but I started applying that principle to other things too, right? What is it that really matters to me in my life? What is all the clutter that I can just not focus on anymore? Welcome to the Success and Ideas podcast. I'm Richard Myron. This is the podcast where I get to understand more about how you define and achieve success. Is it about good ideas, great leadership, luck, or a combination of all of those? Joining me on this edition of the program is Are Trasdal. Are grew up in a small town in Norway. He's very well known in his home country for his success in building up and ultimately selling Tapad, a marketing technology company, for $360 million in 2016. And prior to Tapad, Are founded a mobile entertainment service, iHeartRadio, which he grew to a company with more than $100 million in revenue. And he did that in just three years. In 2016, he established a company called Crisp, which encompasses his professional and personal passions. The company is using technology to reduce global food waste, and we'll hear more about that later. But first, Ari, welcome. How does a small town boy from Norway become a major player on the global stage in high-tech innovation? <laughs> well, I think it's a combination of things. One, growing up in a small town, you're able to kind of build incredible relationships with everybody around you. You have a kind of a trusted network of parents and parents' friends and your own friends. So that kind of comfort around that, I think, is a big part of me and like the trust in others and others can trust me and honesty and then a desire to see more and experience more. How do I get from the small town, which was less than 10,000 people? How do I get to a town that's 150,000 people? From there on, how do I get to Oslo? And then another uh, big goal then was to kind of be able to take my skills and the things that I knew and entrepreneurship and get to really big uh, place like New York where I knew nobody and arrived and had to then start all over again and start building relationships and get to know people and understand how business was done in a completely different city. You know, walking around alone in Manhattan and uh, trying to figure out how to actually get a business off the ground when you know nobody. But that sounds like you've got to be pretty fearless to do what you've done. You leave a place where you know everybody, a small place, and then you're looking for the next biggest place, the next biggest challenge, and on and on and on. And that's, as you said, I mean, there about New York, it, it can be quite lonely, and I would imagine quite intimidating at various points. Yes, I uh, <laughs> I had an uh, back and forth to, to New York and stayed at this hotel when I came and then uh, after waking up at four in the morning, going to work and coming back at midnight every day, the doorman came up to me and said, 
Do you have any friends? <laughs> no, not really. I don't have any friends. <laughs> and then he said, do you want to go out and grab a beer or something? <laughs> so hold on, the doorman took you out of pity. The doorman at the hotel. Yeah, that's right. He realized that I needed a friend. Uh, <laughs> so, so I guess, uh, but after that, I, I started getting one friend and then two friends and four friends. But that was definitely work first and prove that I can do this and prove it to my myself and prove it to others that I can actually build something. Was there something about your background, your parental background or your upbringing that made you want to do to get into high tech, to succeed, to become an entrepreneur? I'm not sure where it's coming from, actually. I always tried to kind of understand that. But when I was like nine, 10 years old, I built Lego and I built this contraption on the door so my mom had to put 25 cents in order to go get into the room because it was a little engine there, a Lego engine that opened up the door and then they closed it behind her and every time she uh, she came in with my clean clothes she had to she put uh, 25 cents on this. I was like this is phenomenal I'm like making a lot of money here I'm not doing anything. 100% margin business, recurring business, a lot of traffic it was perfect. <laughs> And then uh, one day she just like uh, ran out of patience with this experiment and all my <laughs> dirty clothes were never picked up and I got, never got any. So I had 100% churn and the whole business uh, fell apart. <laughs> so a, a really good business lesson there, <laughs> built around dirty laundry. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Customer concentration. I've heard that word later in life. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> but, but, uh, but technology worked. So the technology business has built it once and then... You can actually get a revenue from it in a long time uh, after that. So business lessons like that and just interest in around kind of what can I build and what can I create has kind of always had that drive in me. Now, I mentioned there in the introduction about iHeartRadio, which was also called Thumbplay, a mobile entertainment service. How did you come up with the idea for that? And also, I mean, were there failures? Were there experiments with other businesses that didn't work along the way to achieving that one? Oh, for sure. Yeah. This is 20, goes back almost 20 years ago. Back then, Europe and Scandinavia in particular were very advanced with Nokia and Ericsson and uh, text messages and kind of the beginnings of content on mobile devices. And I was always super fascinated by this. Arriving in the US, I didn't have any friends, but I had a little bit of insight into how this technology would work. And I would, I've always had, even 20 years ago, this vision of you could do everything on your phone instead of doing it on a computer. You could have maps, you could have GPS, you could do banking, you could buy stuff, you could communicate with others, you could have entertainment. So I always had that vision of that the phone would be the most important device. So that was kind of the inspiration behind what became my Radio was the content entertainment service on mobile devices. I think I just believed in that and put a lot of hard work in all of those years before the market actually was there. And when the market kind of turned around, then I had the people in place and I had the business and we had all of those type of things. And then it, bang, it became a big company. You seem to be implying that hard work has constituted a large measure. It's a substantial reason for them that explains your success. Is that how you see it? I think it's hard. I think it's mostly hard work because I think I realized growing up that I was not as smart as the other people. I didn't have as good ideas. I was felt I was like an 80, 90 percent there. I didn't feel I was best at anything, but I felt that I could get really good at stuff if I put in more work than everybody else. 
So I would always kind of get up in 4.30 in the morning and get like three and a half hours of work before others came to work. And I would work another hour or two after others left and sleep like four and a half, five hours a night and was definitely pretty unhealthy. So I think now I've figured out how to work smarter and how to be better at all of that. But in the beginning, I just felt that I had to work harder, especially arriving in a place where you where you don't have the advantage of having gone to Harvard or having gone to any schools and have a network, or then you definitely feel that you are on the, on the defense. So then my solution to that has always been like hard, hard, hard work. And what about Tapad? Was it the same recipe for success there, which was, again, very hard graft, problem solving? Yeah, it was. The insight there was I took a year and a half off between what became iHeart and Tapad too, and just had a room where I wrote down every kind of business idea, any problem I had, any things that I felt should change, all of that, and ended up having these 26 business ideas on these big uh, post-it notes in one room in our apartment with lines between them, and it looked like a a scene of a crime in there with newspaper. <laughs> but I was in there all day and I kind of looked at all of, all of these things around me and the big trends around me and then eventually came up with the idea for Tapad. And from there on, it was just mostly, I think about it as logic and magic. I think the logic part is hard work, study, heads down, like do all of that. But once you've done that for a long period of time, all of a sudden there's some magic moments that happen. There's some insight, there's some connections that happens in your brain. That is the magic moments. Those don't happen without the logic piece first. So, so that happened for, uh, for that company. And, that, and then from there on, it's like really hard work, more insights and a couple of more like magic moments. And then it became, that also became a, a good company. So, I mean, you say Tapad grew out of having these 26 ideas on your wall of, in your apartment. It was a marketing technology company. What was it then about the idea that differentiated it? Yeah, I realized that I was kind of on the wrong track with a lot of my ideas. This is also 10, 12 years ago. I was like, I believe that the phone is going to be big. Take things that's already proven on the internet and then make it do that on the phone. And out of that came ideas like WhatsApp, like I didn't create WhatsApp, but one of the ideas was what WhatsApp became. There was all kinds of mobile commerce and social network that was only on mobile devices, right? And at the end, I realized, okay, Facebook is going to be the biggest mobile. You can't separate it between computer and mobile devices. So out of that came an idea that there's just one person in front of all of these different devices and we need a way to kind of coordinate messaging and coordinate measurement in between all of these different devices. There's just going to be more and more and more devices and nobody's solving for that problem. So that was kind of a little magic moment that created Tapad. And then, of course, you had huge success with it and you sold the company in 2016. And I think you did something quite unexpected that personally I would love to do which is you <laughs> set off on a round the world trip with your family right how many of you are there how old were your kids at the time and where did you go yeah my daughter was four at the time and my son was seven so and my wife so we went to like 35 countries around the world and just kind of got to see the world through our kids eyes as well which was fascinating for them to just kind of travel around and see be in Africa and be in Cambodia and Laos and spent two and a half months in Japan where our seven-year-old was just walking around 
by himself on the streets of Tokyo. I could go into the store and buy something, right? And you would never do that in any other big city. So, and your kids probably have these memories that you don't even know that they had. Almost, but all of a sudden, they something kind of pops into their head, and they uh, they're like, "Oh, do you remember when we?" saw that ostrich that just ran straight and it ran so fast. Like, I never thought they would actually remember these things because they never didn't think about it right there and then. But like three years later, there's like kind of something that like fires in their brain. And uh, it's it's super fascinating. We got this amazing experience as, as a family, which was just unbelievable, unbelievable experience. What was the idea behind that for you? Was it you know, I've worked really hard and I want to reward myself and spend time with my family. Or was there something spiritual about it? I mean, you tell me. I think there were a couple of things. One, uh, when you spend that much time at work, I realized that we as a family just need to spend a tremendous amount of time together and a quality time together. So that was one thing. And have these experiences that no matter what, what happens in life, nobody can take those experiences away. And then also was like, I felt like there was more to understand and more to explore. And can being in big cities, if you're in London or in Oslo or in New York, it's, it's still kind of a lot of similarities between those, those cities. And then uh, being able to kind of travel around and experience countryside of India and the countryside of Bhutan and Laos and all of these different places, kind of back to back to back was, yeah, there was something spiritual about it as well, but really matters in life. Yeah. And I read this uh, Harvard study about who created the most happiness and the ones was all around the, the personal relationships that you have to others, right? It was not about money or where you lived or anything like that. It was the personal relationships you have with others, with your kids, your friends, your family. So we met a lot of new friends and we brought along some of our existing friends, came and met us around the world. And yeah, so that was just an amazing, amazing experience. Were you thinking about your next business when you were on that trip? The first six months, I didn't. I uh, unsubscribed from absolutely everything, completely disconnected from everything. I read this book, Marie Kondo. She writes about how you can minimize everything. And we started out with 14 suitcases, and we ended up with three carry-ons for a 14-month trip around the world. <laughs> but I started applying that principle to other things too, right? What is it that really matters to me in my life? What is all the clutter that I can just not focus on anymore? It kind of came down to kind of what is kind of core of what makes me happy and what makes me excited. And that is family and friends. And I love create things, uh, create companies. So after six months, then I seen enough and got enough, like almost like being in my room with the 26 uh, business ideas again, but now I'm in uh, traveling around the world and getting all of these impressions. So that's then after six months, I started actually writing down kind of my observations as I did that every morning, woke up and I wrote down my observation. And that created a hundred business ideas actually. Wow. After the next kind of six months, uh, I had about a hundred different business ideas. A lot of really bad ones, right? <laughs> and a lot of really but, the, but it's just you see a problem, some kind of problem first, right? I write down the problems without thinking about the solution. I just write down the problem. And then after that, I start with solutions to that. And then I try to think about the solutions without any limitations of technology or limitations of people, limitations of competitors or anything like that. What is the best solution to that problem? Then I start to apply the, the limitations, right? Oh, there's somebody who does that already. Or oh, it's impossible to 
take a car and fold it in two and put it in your pocket. Okay, I understand. Okay, we can't do that. <laughs> and so then I apply the limitations after, and then out of those 100 comes like 10 business ideas that are decent at that point. But what I've seen, I saw with Tapad and I saw with uh, Crisp, the business idea is actually some kind of combination of those 10 ideas, ideas again, because you've learned so much by going out in all kinds of different directions, and you're actually then created one new business idea out of those, those 10 that all could work, basically. <laughs> because Crisp came from an observation that you directly made when you were traveling, right? It's about food wastage. Yeah, there was, uh, we were back to back. We were in India first and we uh, had our kids with us and we saw kids on the street with a lot of food insecurities, to use a diplomatic word for it. But we saw people starving on the streets and kids our age that didn't have food at all. And then we traveled to New Zealand right after and we stayed at this beautiful apple orchard. And there we saw all these apples that just were rotting and falling down on the on the ground because they didn't pick them. They didn't know if they were going to be able to sell them. So the apples fell on the ground. The 60% of the apples of that orchard never got picked. Wow. So I'm like, what? This this makes no sense, right? That some people are starving over here and we have all of this food that goes to waste over here. So that was kind of inspiration behind it, was just seeing it with my own eyes, how much food goes to waste. And at the same time, we have people who don't have food. But the idea of CRISP is to use a technology platform, that's correct, to, to minimize food waste by suppliers of, of various types, of various kinds? Yeah, it is to modernize that industry in terms of technology. The $10 trillion industry so it is the largest industry in the world, but it is also the one that hasn't gone through that big technology revolution that happened to banking and finance and happened to entertainment and to advertising and sales. It's very backwards and old systems. Over 100 million companies are actually trading with each other to bring food to a grocery store. There's importers, there's exporters, there's growers, there are food packaging companies, there are food brands, there are logistic companies. It's a lot of companies involved in it, and it's mostly done by email, and it's done by old school systems of purchase orders and things like that. So I felt like it's a big opportunity to bring some of the technology insights that we have from earlier to unify all of this data, modernizing it, enhance collaboration between partners, go from being very reactive to being much more proactive in terms of understanding the demand, understanding what happens with the actual consumer, even if you're further back in the in the value chain. It's a kind of a black box for a lot of companies in the space. They understand what their customers are doing and understanding what their suppliers are doing, but it's a whole web of companies that are trading with each other and they all are kind of influenced by each other. It's a huge, enormous problem to solve, but we're making some traction. But the bottom line here is you're building Crisp to be a profitable company. It may have a mission, right? But you define success, I assume, by the bottom line. But also you say you also have this mission to end this huge amount of food wastage. Which one comes first? Uh, yeah, we call it that double bottom line. <laughs> so we've, uh, we've said that there's a bottom line for the world. So if we are successful, we need to get to some tremendous scale. We need to get the technology in everywhere. And if that happens, then we believe that we will have a positive impact on the world's bottom line. I didn't come from a family with business people. I came from a family with focus on social issues more. But uh, I believe that in order for something to be really sustainable over a long period of time, the companies that are 
responsible for food also needs to make more money. Then we need to influence their bottom line. And here it's actually pretty simple in a way because nobody makes money by food going to waste, right? It's uh, it's a cost if you uh, throw away food, and it's also lost revenue if you have too little, you sell less. If you have too much, you have to throw away. So we found something here that we can drive towards this double bottom line, which is exciting because I think that's the only way that it can be sustainable is that it actually makes more money for our customers and eventually for us too. But first focused on what is the big mission for the world? How can we then have a systematic change for all of the companies involved? And then if we succeed with those two things, then it will be a, a good outcome for us as well. You pointed out there that you don't come from a business background. And there's sometimes, as you kind of implied there, there's this dichotomy, this separation between business and doing good. Mm -hmm. And you see no separation between those two. You see a marriage between those two. Yeah, I do. Because I think growing up, my vivid memories of my dad sitting on his old school typewriter, writing for Amnesty International and writing letters to dictators around the world and women that were put in prison uh, with no trial and uh, like all those type of things. Every night he would sit there and write these letters and send them by mail to different things that he felt was kind of injustice. But then kind of when after my Lego thing, I started kind of going much more into the business business world, the business side. But this kind of part has already always been a part, a part of me. So now I see that those two things are coming together because... A lot of kind of do-good type of work becomes foundations and becomes committees. But what is actually happening? What is the change that is happening? So I didn't like that because I like to kind of be a part of the change. So, so this is kind of a perfect thing for me now because now I can combine those two worlds. How do you therefore define success going forward? You've had these multiple business successes and you've now set up a company which aspires to end food wastage, which is a massive huge project where does success lie for you now so we're trying to be, be systematic about this so a third of all the food in the world that's produced in the world one third doesn't even reach a consumer so one third of 10 trillion dollars is 3.3 trillion dollars of value that never gets to our customers so if we look at it from a business perspective that alone is probably one of the biggest markets in the world and then if you look at that from an environmental perspective side, then it's obviously horrible to use the world's resources to grow grow the food, transport it, keep it cold, package it, and then actually lose it on the way. And then all of these companies in the space, they're actually not making a lot of money. So these companies that are a part of these of it, it's actually a very, very thin margins. So everybody along the supply chain has very, very thin margins, which means that typically the supply, the food producers, the ones that actually are the farmers and the ones that make the food, get under 5% of what we as consumer pay for it because there's so many, so much wastage along the way. So from the macro perspective, we want to influence all of those numbers. That's success on that front. And then the last company we built into $100 million in revenue. I think this will be into the billions of revenue because that's a scale we actually need to get to in order for us to have any impact here because the industry is so big. So, so we're trying to keep thinking about all those metrics at the same time. But what, what is success for you personally? Uh, that's a good question. I, uh, it's a good question. I'm getting simpler and simpler the older I get, I feel. Uh, earlier I was like, well, I had to explore everything, but now I'm getting simpler and simpler. So it's, I love to create and build things. So if I'm in a setting like this, where I can build and create, I love being able to 
create teams and people that start out without the experience. And at the end, they actually now they have a tremendous amount of experience and they have a phenomenal career and we work together as a team and all that. I love seeing that every day. It's hard to quantify that, but you can feel it when you created a bunch of amazing superstars on the team that love to work together and they stay together as friends forever. That uh, is harder to quantify, but I love that. I love taking on these things that nobody thinks is possible. So if there's after starting to see a little bit of a glimmer of hope that we are getting somewhere, we can actually fix something that nobody thought was fixable. And then I'm spending so much time with my kids and with my wife as well. So we are together the whole time. I get up in the morning and get the kids ready for school. Both of us do that. So we get like two hours in the morning with them. When they're done with their school, I get at least an hour and a half with them at night before they have all of the things that they need to do. So if I can get like three solid three, four hours a day together with my kids, and then I spend even more time with that with my wife. So that's also defined success for me and continued experiences together with them. So it's been less Less traveling the last week. We did take a road trip this summer and drove through the U.S. You did take a road trip, you say? Yeah, we did a phenomenal road trip. All these places in the U.S. that I've never been to. Uh, Montana and Utah and Lake Powell and yeah, all of that. And the coastline of wow. Oregon and went up to Alaska as a family. So we got all of these great experiences. I've worked through that whole period, but we got to continue to get these great experiences together. It reminds me, actually, when I lived in the States and, and my daughters, I have two daughters, and they were then about sort of, I don't know, seven and nine, something like that. We did this trip. Uh-huh. And we went across the whole the whole of the US, but we stopped. I remember this one place, and the, and the kids are reminding me of it the other day, and it was in Arkansas. And there were no other tourists there or anything like that, and it's this really basic campsite by a river. And we'd have barbecues by the river, and the kids would float down the river in these in these rubber rings, and we were just chatting about it the other day, and they're like, "Oh yeah, do you remember Dad?" And you know how we'd go from our tent, and I almost trod on a snake, and huh. and it it still sticks with them. And this was a few years ago, and you're right. I mean, those memories are kind of imprinted on the kids, and they're the best of memories. And then that is kind of the simplest, uh, like you're just sitting there and you have just a simplicity, right? You're just with the people you love and you have amazing scenery around you. And uh, I, agree. It's, I agree. So after selling, you obviously ended up spending money on expensive hotels. The kids don't remember any of that. They <laughs> remember that we were in a RV, all of us on top of each other in like a small RV for 14 days. And we had this like little tent that we set up outside of the RV. That's what they really remember. <laughs> These like expensive hotels, they, they don't care. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. I mean, and also the other point is, is when you go to like some some motel they treated it like we'd arrived at like five-star luxury it's like dad there's a bed with sheets (laughs) yeah right and become really excited about that and then you think okay i think i'm doing something right here but yes ari i'm jealous of your recipe for for success and i think it's something that we all aspire to and also to hearing about how you how you nurture ideas ari trasdal thank you very much indeed for joining me on the podcast Great. Thank you so much for asking these questions. I never uh, get to think about this or talk about it. So it's actually it's like, yeah, exciting. Now, if you've enjoyed this program, then, then please do listen to others in this series and also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also share and rate this program. I'm Richard Myron. The producer of this edition is Anouk Mie. 
And this has been an Earshot Strategies production. All the best. Music.